back to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And today we're talking about Kurosawa's first color film. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a film with color, not necessarily a color film. Yes, a film with color in one shot, and it admittedly does look kind of shitty, but it was cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of really crazy cool stuff in this one. High and Low from 1963, also known as Heaven and Hell. I got to see this last year at Alamo Drafthouse in 35mm with a couple of our friends. They didn't even tell us that it was 35mm until we got there, so that was like a crazy surprise. Also, I got the ticket for free, the day just kept getting better, and when we left, one of them said to me that that was the best movie they'd ever seen in their life. I think if I'd seen this in 35mm, I would agree. <laughs> oh, it was a great, great way to see it. I saw it in my room, <laughs> but, but that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, and this time I saw it with my parents, also great. Yeah, I didn't see it with my parents either, I just kind of watched it in my bed. <laughs> Like, yeah, 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 you know, all, all's well. A good movie's a good movie, no matter how you watch it. Yeah, don't tell Marty Scorsese that. Or yeah, David Lynch. David for that Lynch, yeah. yeah. You know what I was thinking before the movie? I feel like the police procedural genre is as much in debt to Kurosawa as the samurai genre is. But no one talks about it. Yeah, absolutely. He, again, that was something that I was so excited about this whole retrospective is that we're going to delve into the beginnings of so many different genres. I mean, we're going to have a lot of stray dog comparisons with this one, because this, is, I think, is a much improved version of what stray dog is. I famously like stray dog, but yeah, this was, you know, it was better. <laughs> it also, you know, has a lot in common with the bad sleepwell, just like, you know, involving, you know, corruption and crime and stuff. Unlike those two, though, this isn't an original concept for Kurosawa. It's based on the novel King's Ransom by Edward McBain, although it has a lot of major changes on his part. Yeah, that's probably why I thought the lead character's name was King. Because it was from a book, King's Ransom. But no, his name is King Go Gondo. And it's played by Toshiro Mifune. I literally read the summary. I was like, oh, Toshiro Mifune plays industry tycoon King Gondo. I was like, that's sick. <laughs> Who's this King Gondo character? And I watched it. I was like, wait, this doesn't seem right. And then I realized that it's, it's just his name, King Go. King Go could have been Toshiro Mifune's name in real life. Little spoiler, he is once again Mr. Too Damn Honorable. Except kind of not, but then definitely is again. <laughs> He becomes Mr. Too Damn Honorable, but uh, he certainly is not Mr. Too Damn Honorable the whole time. At the very beginning, he is the Mr. Too Damn Honorable of shoes, which I respect. I actually care a lot about shoes, and I was like, yeah, you're right. Go off. Yeah, I was like, it, it's a tough sell making me sympathetic for, like, an industrialist millionaire, but if this guy's going to be a boss, I think that he's a good one. His workers like him, and he's committed to the craft. Very obviously, just, like, things to make the audience like him. Yeah, and, like, very obviously not what anybody else in that room is doing. Damn, I just made a movie a couple years ago about all these types of people, but they were all terrible. Now I gotta make one that's good. Yeah, the redemption of the industrialist in Kurosawa's eyes. So, uh, let's get into the plot. Kingo Gondo is about to make the boldest move of his career by acquiring a majority stake in the National Shoes Company. He has mortgaged everything he owns for this opportunity, but before he can finalize the time-sensitive sale, he receives a call telling him that his son has been kidnapped. However, the boy is revealed to be fine, and the kidnapper actually got a hold of Gondo's chauffeur's son, Shinichi. The police are brought into the conflict as Gondo wrestles with whether or not he should pay the outrageously large ransom, but he eventually does. After 30 million yen is thrown out of a train and Shinichi is recovered, an in-depth police procedure begins. Shinichi manages to bring investigators to the hideout where he was held hostage. Inside the shack, they find two dead junkies who have overdosed on heroin, along with a note to the kidnapper indicating their intention to blackmail him. The police soon deduce that poor medical intern Ginjiro Takayuchi is the kidnapper and he gave the junkies a pure heroin to cause them to overdose. The cops use the press and a forged note to trick him into thinking his victims are still alive. Detectives tail him through Dope Alley as he buys more heroin and tests its effectiveness on another junkie, killing her. 
They follow him back to the hideout and arrest him. Before facing execution, Takeuchi asks to meet Gondo in prison, explaining his jealous hatred for the wealthy man who lived in luxury above miserable poverty. He claims to be unafraid of dying, though his emotions betray him as he is dragged out of the room and a protective shutter closes, leaving Gondo alone. So, quite a lot happens in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's almost two movies. This movie is, I think, the most bifurcated of all of them. You know, we've seen that with other ones like Scandal or Kiru. With high and low, heaven and hell, it is really a film of two parts. Start the first half up high in Gondo's house, and the second half down low in the slums of the city. That makes sense, yeah. I guess I wasn't thinking structurally about it, because I've only seen it once. I, I didn't have enough time to think about that, but yeah, that makes sense. I actually didn't feel the bifurcation was as bad as it was in, like, Ikaru, and where I thought it was more distracting. Mm-hmm. Just because we actually, you know, Tetsuya Nakadai was there, like, the whole time. He kind of, like, holds it together. Whereas in Akiru, it's like really just Takashi Shimura and then he like disappears. Yeah, I I agree. I used to have a bigger problem with the way that this movie was split because I think the first hour is just so, so good. And then the second hour, though, is also so, so good, just in a very different way. The problems I used to really have with this movie have smoothed over a lot. And I now realize that Tatsuya Nakadai's character is also the main character. It's just that he's not in the first 20 minutes. Because of that, it feels like he is a secondary character and that Gondo is the main, but that's not the case. Yeah, and Kurosawa's done that before where you start on a character and then another one becomes the main one over time. Sometimes, like, the main character will die and then you'll just be following someone else. Yeah, and, you know, Gondo does weave his way in and out of the second half a little bit more than I did remember, which I think is nice. You know, they wind up going to his house a couple times. They have that really cool scene where Takeuchi actually asks Gondo to light his cigarette, which is just a wild, like, power move that he doesn't even realize. When you see him over by the shoe store, I was like, oh yeah, Gondo, I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah, this is by forget. At least in this movie, he is honest about it. I mean, it's literally in the title. <laughs> Whereas some other movies, it's like, oh wait, the movie's totally different now. What's going on? But, you know, it's set up where you kind of expect that. I even, like, at the point in which the police start to, like, look for the guy, there's, like, a like a slow fade to black. And I was like, oh, here comes part two of the second half of the movie, which will be totally different. Like, you can feel that it's going to happen. It's not quite so rough. And it's like, yeah, we're following the cops. Like, what is Gondo going to do? He literally doesn't have a part to play, and thus he isn't in a lot of the movie. He's not a cop. He's not a detective. They already have the information they need from him because they were there the whole time. And if they need something, they just go to his place and talk to him. Yeah, it is weird, but I think it's, it works. I think just like conceptually, this has been the one Kurosawa that has always caught my attention more than any other. Because I think the premise of having this kid be kidnapped, but it's the wrong kid, but they still want the same guy to pay for it is so, so good. I remember the day that I heard about this movie, I had never raced to watch a movie quicker than then because I was like immediately like, that sounds so crazy. That's so simple, but so brilliant. I gotta see it. I mean, Kurosawa loves to, like, use these moral questions in his movies, but I think, like, it is more successful here than anywhere else. Even though I didn't find very many answers for myself, including what I even thought. I was like, should he? I don't know. I definitely am with you with the philosophical angle for this. I think Kurosawa tackles a lot of really great ethics questions in this movie, some very directly and some indirectly. And I think that that's what makes the movie so engaging is the movie is all about actually making you work and making you feel like a detective because you're piecing together everything with the rest of the cops and you also totally empathize with everybody in this situation. And so it is like, yeah, what would I do if someone tried to kidnap my son, but they actually kidnapped like my neighbor's son or something? 
Or then later on, that uh, junkie woman at the end of the movie dies because these cops let a murderer walk free to trail him and frame him for a bigger crime so they could lock him up longer, but because of that, someone died. Yeah, I know. I was like, why didn't they just arrest him then? That was, he just did murder. He did murder and they, they like, saw it. <laughs> they heard more or less. <laughs> he always gives us a lot to chew on, but I think here especially, it is just a banquet of ideas. I think there is even some moral complication to, like, the role of the cops. I didn't agree with everything they did, and I wasn't happy with all their actions, even though, you know, they're the good guys and they win. When it came to the point where, like, we need capital punishment for this man, I was like, that's, like, weird. I think that's a little bit dated. I think nowadays there's, like, different opinions generally about capital punishment, but comes across when they're like, we gotta kill this guy (laughs) with the power of the state. Whatever. As a socialist, I have opinions on that. Something interesting that Donald Ritchie put in his book, also, by the way, he was on set for part of this movie. Oh, wow. He he actually got to be there for part of it, and he talked about some behind-the-scenes stuff. He was saying that this is the story of a man who has always been in control of his life, and then now there are two different forces that are wrestling control away from him. Because the first half is this kidnapper now has a stranglehold on his life. And then in the second half, the police are now the ones that really are the only way for him to get his means and money back. So he can't do anything until they do what they need to. And who knows how long that'll take. He has to resort to going back to square one. So yeah, I guess we should go into the beat by beat. King Gondo is about to make the boldest move of his career. (laughs) Yeah, he's about to end these man's whole career. Yeah, literally. They're trying to end his in, you know, very classic industrialist, like, slime bags. The way they look. They're supposed to look unethical. <laughs> yeah, they, they look like a walking HR nightmare. Yeah, they're trying to strong arm King Gondo. King Gondo. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> the king. Into essentially selling out. They're trying to make these shoes at half the cost for double the profit and make them shitty. And this is a thing that um a lot of shoe companies did actually do. I don't think in the 60s, though. This feels like kind of early to be talking about that. If you just, like, talk to old people about any given shoe company, they'll be like, man, they used to be better and now they're not, for probably exactly the reasons that we see in this movie. He saw it coming. It's another capitalist nightmare, like the bad sleep will. King Gogondo doesn't want to do that. He is the one who actually is in charge of making the shoes. He runs the factory, and he's actually a guy who came up from working on the factory to eventually running it. So he's kind of like the rags to riches story, and that sets him apart from the other guys who clearly don't share the same background of him. They're clearly just suits that have come up as Japanese salarymen. They would view a shoe company the same way they would view any other company. Today, they'd be private equity ghouls, just buying Toys R Us, stripping it for parts, (laughs) and selling it. But, you know, that's what they're doing with their own company, the National Shoes Company. Which only makes women's shoes, which is strange. Yeah, maybe they could double their profit by making twice as many types of shoes. I do really like him. He's like, this is trash. You're just ripping the shoe apart. (laughs) He really just shuts them down. And they're like, all right, King Gogondo, then we're going to convince the old man who is the whatever CEO owner of the company. And we're going to kick you out. And then you'll be like the last thing stopping us. They talk about the old man all the time and we don't even see him. But he's just kind of this anonymous, neutral third party that has enough stake in the company that whoever can convince him to join their side would automatically gain their control of the company. But Gondo has put this plan in motion to have enough that even if the three of them combine forces with the old man, they will not have enough. Yeah, he'd have 1% more, which is crazy. Yeah, as if they can't buy one more percent. That would just mean de facto that he is the CEO. The stockholder said it's my turn to be the CEO. This is the Kurosawa Stonks movie. You never see people talk that much about corporate ownership structure in movies. It was cool to see that. Everyone thinks he has 14. Everyone thinks he's kind of a small stakes owner. But he secretly bought like 15 whatever more. And then he was about to make a deal for like the last whatever to put him up to 57%. And that deal is going to cost him 30 million yen. 
and he has 30 million yen all uh, because he mortgaged everything in his entire life including the clothes on his back seemingly without telling his wife or anyone else Gondo has this aide, Kawanishi, who you're kind of always a little suspect of him because the other directors are like, yo, you could totally help us sell this guy out and then we'll make you a director instead. So he's automatically on a suspect list like, okay, what's this guy going to do? Yeah, and he seems sympathetic to it. He's like in King of Gondo's corner because he's been his assistant for so long, but he's like obviously corruptible and they like make that clear. Yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't want to be a subordinate forever. He does have his own aspirations, and so this could be the key to a very good job in a very successful company. And all the while, we have a couple other characters running around. We have Aoki, who is Gondo's chauffeur, and then Gondo's son and Aoki's son are running around playing cowboys and Indians, I guess. Yeah, with a cap gun that you can apparently fire like a thousand times without reload. <laughs> yeah, so one of them is running around dressed as a cowboy. The other isn't. Gondo gives the advice to his son that is exactly the same way that he's living, where he's like, you gotta hide, and then you gotta come out, and you gotta kill him. June is his son, and then Shinichi is Aoki's son. They're first running around outside, then they come inside, and without anybody knowing, switch clothes to switch roles, because, you know, they're good LARPers. Then they run outside again, and that's the last time we see Shinichi for a very long time. We have a couple different phone calls come in and out as Gondo secures his plans and then finally tells his closest friends and family about it. And tells his assistant that he has to fly to Osaka that night to secure the deal and make him majority shareholder in the entire company. The actual amount of money that he's going to have to pay in total, I think, is something like $150 million. He only needs to pay like $30 million up front, and then once he has the possession of the stuff, he'll have so much more money that he can pay off his creditors and everything. I really love the way that Kurosawa was able to use a phone ringing to just bring dread. Every single time that phone rings, you perk up because you get so nervous because it's like, I have no idea who it is. You know, definitely. That's, that's well used throughout the movie and it keeps happening. We finally get the call that I've kidnapped your son and I want 30 million yen. The audience knows because Mifune says, what? You've kidnapped my son? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, everyone, everyone runs in. We move really close to him. That's another thing. There's a lot of camera movement in this. A lot of moving up and down in keeping with the titular themes of the movie. A lot of moving high and low with the camera. <laughs> I, at that point, thought, oh, maybe it was the three executives. But that was really fast to pull that off. They are definitely suspects because you know now that there are people that hold a grudge against Gondo. We also know that there's this slimy other guy that'd be willing to do bad things. Yeah, but it, you know, it doesn't exactly make sense because they just learned that he wasn't going to agree with them. They really thought he was going to do it. Always go into a, the meeting with a contingency plan. So he's freaking out. He's like, I'll give you the 30 million yen. I don't care. I'll do it. And then his son walks in. <laughs> and he's like, wait, <laughs> my son has not been kidnapped. But where is his friend? My chauffeur's son. My widow chauffeur. Yeah, my perfectly set up person to be the most sympathetic and wretched <laughs> person. Uh, his son was actually stolen because they are identical in swap clothes. <laughs> I love that in the shots, Aoki is always like off to the side, but he's always there. And then eventually they have a cut where he's finally center frame and he realizes, oh my God, if it wasn't his son, it was my son. And he sprints out the door. At which point he's like, oh, we'll call the police. He's like, you weren't going to call the police when it was your son. <laughs> There's like he, he can't hold him hostage. That's ridiculous. He can't extort 30 million yen out of a chauffeur. But we learn, uh, yes, he can. <laughs> He's like, um, so I made a mistake, but the, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I still want 30 million yen. So the police are called. They come in disguise, which is very clever. They come as a department store shipment. 
the the police are shown to be like very competent despite the fact that it's a very difficult situation this is the most competent police department in cinema history yeah any movie that displays the police doing things is propaganda because this would never have happened the way that they sell it is that Tokura says that the highest ransom before today was only like 2 million yen. So the fact that this guy's asking for 15 times as much money is totally ridiculous. It has literally put the entire force of the city's police department to finding this guy because it's so outrageous and this man is clearly deranged. So that's why they can do such a thorough investigation that probably otherwise would never ever happen. The one thing I'm a little confused about you know, spoiler, we learned that the person who did the kidnapping has nothing to do with any of this going on with the business. So why did he know that King Gogando has 30 million yen exactly saved up and ready to use at that notice? I chalk it all up to the one kind of gimme that you got to give this movie because it is incredibly convenient to have this happen at literally the exact same minute that he is just suddenly for the first time in his life become poor technically it's just pure convenience for the sake of drama, but that's fine because he's broke no matter what, essentially. He would need to mortgage everything to pay this ransom anyway, but now there's an additional level of suspense to it. If King Gogano didn't have this crazy plan to buy the stock and the guy was like, I need 30 million, he'd be like, I don't have that. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't remotely have that amount of money. I only happen to have it for plot reasons unrelated to anything you'd know about. That's like my only complaint about the entire film. <laughs> I agree, and you know what? It isn't enough of a complaint to actually, like, really impact it for me. I'll give the movie one conceit. We need this to have extreme drama. Yeah, I didn't even realize that until much later, because you don't realize that he's unrelated until much later. Yeah, and, and it lends credence to us suspecting the other people, because we know that they would have that knowledge. It's a lot of time of getting more phone calls and having a lot of debate because Aoki is like begging him against his better judgment to please pay the ransom. I will literally work the rest of my life to try and pay it off. The proverb is begging, but it's made very clear that if King Okando does this, he probably isn't getting the money back. Like he's financially screwed. He's now asking this other man to sacrifice his livelihood for his son's life. It is an absurd thing to ask anybody, but he is the only one that can do it. It's just an unfair situation. I mean, there's no good way out of it, which is what I think makes the drama of it so good is like, yeah, there's no right answer here. Well, no, there is a right answer. And it is, yeah. again, the, the cops put it out pretty clearly where it's like, the first thing we need to do is just focus on getting the kid back. Then we'll worry about catching the guy. The kid's life is the main priority. And it's like, yes, I agree. That's probably the way it should be. Like, that, that, I think, is a good value to put forward in, in terms of life over money. But it is also like, yeah, but then this man's life, his family's life, is screwed too. Like, now they're broke. He's going to get forced out of his own company if he doesn't do this. And now he can't do it, so he's not going to have any stake in the company anyway. Also, is Naoki unemployed now? Because they can't pay him. <laughs> King Ogando really does get screwed in real actual terms. Um, and he does, and it happens. Like, the film doesn't magically make that away. But yeah, we're dealing with that now. I mean, at this point, the police are on the scene. They arrive very competent. They also, for at least the first half of the movie, are like totally useless. You're just like sitting there watching King Ogando be like, what do I do? And the, the police are like, yeah, I don't know, man. Sorry. <laughs> we can help you after. They're like, we can't tell you what to do. We can tell you what we'd like you to do. But ultimately, they can't make themselves known. From conversations with the kidnapper, we know that he can see inside the house. And he explicitly said, don't call the cops. Otherwise, I'll kill this kid. So, like, these guys always have to hide, and then they're saying, like, 
you know, like we just try and keep him talking so we can track his location or say this just to make sure that the kid is okay. And there's only so much they can do when it's a hostage situation because they go into the details of how difficult they are because it's like the guy has the power, but, you know, he's not going to be able to hold on to it forever. And so it's a matter of what can we do to get what we want, but also prevent this guy from doing the worst possible thing, which would be killing Shinichi. Yeah, I think the train situation that we'll get to also kind of helps with that because it like really is a situation where the robber has it all figured out. Because until then, I was just like, wherever they do the handoff, can't they just like have like a sniper or something? Like, why or aren't they doing more to help? <laughs> why are they just like, yeah, you got to do it? Like, <laughs> I was a little frustrated on King Ogano's behalf of the fact that the police are just sitting there like, sorry, man, <laughs> the state won't help you. This crime is going to happen to you. It's like if you try and pull any tricks that they can catch on to immediately, they could still kill the kid. I mean, there was a very real possibility that when they sent the money out the train that they kept the kid. There's no way of guaranteeing that Shinichi is actually going to be freed, but this is their best shot at it. And they just have to hope that the guy actually won't keep this hostage because he's going to want to skip town and you don't want to have to keep holding onto a hostage and you probably don't want to actually have to kill a child. Yeah, I know. I just like, they seem very uncreative at the beginning. Like, they're not even, like, suggesting things that could have been possibilities, like, give them fake money or whatever. Like, they felt impotent at first, then they, they make up for it. There's a lot of, like, moral questioning, and King Ogando's like, I'm not going to do it. All right, I'm going to do it. There's a lot of phone calls where they record them, but they never get enough time to do it. There's some techniques with, um, you know, one time he picks up the phone, then it wipes to after the phone conversation, they listen to it on recording. Yeah, I thought that one was really cool, so we don't have to see them then listen to it again and then talk about it. There's a lot of nice wipes in this one, because we're going to so many different places at so many different times. There's a lot of intercutting with wipes, with cops in the main meeting that we'll talk about later, intercutting what they're saying they did with them actually doing it, which is a nice middle ground of like, we get everything here, but we don't actually have to see it in real time, but we still get to see it to understand it so we can take in the clues visually. It's like half a montage, or whatever. I don't know. It's well made. It's kind of what happens in the second half of Ikaru, in that situation, but... One thing I want to talk about is the Gondo household water pressure. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the shower. He takes the most aggressive shower I've ever seen committed to film. <laughs> that man has supreme water pressure. He's like blasting the skin off of his body. Later on, he also is in the train bathroom and he just keeps splashing himself with water. Like, Mifune is very aggressive with his water in this movie. I love the way that the whole house is utilized, too. It's very large and open. It's sitting on a hill above a slum. He uh, is always playing with the curtains as a way of externalizing some of his uh, frustration and anxiety as he's walking back and forth, especially when Aoki is begging him and he's like, stop begging me. Like, I don't want to talk about it. He's like in the curtain. You like don't even see him at that point. The cops even acknowledge later on and like, you know, I do see how this would make someone really angry because you just see it. And then I'm like, I agree. That's pretty insensitive of the dude. And it's like the guy is good, but he also is flaunting his wealth to people that live much worse lives than him. Maybe he didn't make the house. Maybe he bought it. <laughs> Whatever. Still, he chose to buy it. So Gondo, like, finally says, I'm not going to do it. And everyone is like, all right. Um, and then he gets a call. And, well, he's like, the police captain tells him, you know, at least say you will. Like, let's do something fake or whatever. Like, pretend we will. So he gets the call, and the call says, strange, Kingo Gondo, why are your curtains closed? It's like the middle of the day. And you never do that. I would know. I wish he would use the excuse, oh, I'm naked, I just got out of the shower, because he is. <laughs> uh, but no, he doesn't say that. Yeah, he actually is in his bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, he has, like, actually the perfect excuse. He's literally, like, <laughs> naked. Like, why would he open the curtains if he was just changing? He runs to take a shower, they get a phone call, they get him out of the shower, he runs in, wet as all hell, and then, yeah, that's when this phone call happens. He says, I'll do it, and then they hang up after the police hide, 
we're like not really sure what's happening and that's when king ogando calls the bank and says hey can you give me 30 million yen in cash and that's when we learn that he's actually going to do it the kidnapper has very specific demands for this use of the serial numbers and the exact types of banknotes that they need which is good because the police have all that information so that when certain things are cashed they're able to find them there's actually nice dialogue from the cops once we reach the train they're like you know, I didn't like him at first, but I really have come to respect him. Yeah, I grew up poor, so I have disdain for the rich, which I love just to see a character say. But I've come around to this guy, he actually seems like a very genuine guy, which he is. I don't think there's ever a part in this movie where you don't like Gondo. There's a part where you're angry with him because you're like, I do want you to do this. But I also acknowledge how ridiculous of a demand that it is. And I feel terrible for you that you have to do it. I was always okay with him not doing it. <laughs> I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> But he does it, because, you know, it's not a Bellatar film. This train sequence is just masterful. All the cops are undercover on there. They've searched the entire train. They don't find the kid. You know, they're passing notes to each other. One of them keeps falling asleep. They're like, this isn't a luxury trip. We're looking for a child. They've arranged, okay, you need to get this specific briefcase that holds exactly this much money, and it's exactly this thick. Before they go to the train, Gondo actually gets his old tool bag that he clearly hasn't touched in years and puts in a little pill capsule thing that the cops have for a couple different contingencies when the guy tries to get rid of the evidence. So if he burns it, it'll create pink smoke. If he drowns it, it'll create like a horrid smell or something. There's a, a few different ways that it can go. And Gondo, because he used to also work on leather bags, is able to put it in a really good place that they would never find. Boston says, oh, we're going to need a specialist for this. Like, we're not qualified. And he's like, say no more. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, you know another scene where you come to like him because he's cool. And the reason that the kidnapper has demanded this is he said, go to the train and I'll give you more information then. And he calls the train and he says like, which is sick. You're going to throw those two briefcases out the window that opens exactly 2.75 inches so you can slip it through exactly. You're going to arrive at this bridge. Before you cross it, you will see the kid as proof that he's still there and that we will hand him over. And once you cross the bridge, you will send those two briefcases out. That's genius. There's nothing the cops can do about it. They have no way of getting people there in time. They're stuck on a moving train that they can't just hop off of or drive away with. They're like, damn, this guy's really got his corner. This is basically the only acceptable way for this crime to have possibly happened. It was literally perfect. This is presumably Edward McBain's writing, because that was, like, really crazy. Like, I was like, how would anyone come up with this? But if, you know, you're a crime writer or whatever, if it's your thing, then I guess it makes sense. It's like a Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. There's something that's so satisfying about just seeing a plan and watching it be executed. They really got him. It's like that great moment right before he actually throws the money out the window, where you just know he's watching, like, his entire life flash before his eyes as he has one second of almost hesitation, but he just is holding it there, and then he just lets it go. He's got to do it for this kid. And he does it. The kid is released, which they, you know, they get off the next stop, and they drive back as fast as they can. The kid's there. He's fine. One thing that does happen <laughs> is they take 8mm footage of both the front and the back and out the side and pictures and everything, try to get as much information as they can on this guy. The people are dressed so that there's no facial identification. There's, they're wearing big hats and everything, so they got nothing on that except a location, and then they can also see if anybody was around them because there was a farmer near them, and he sends them one place and then another and another. They learn that it's like a woman and a man, <laughs> and the man might seem young or whatever because he's mobile. Richie points out it's like this moment of extreme movement in between like these two pretty stagnant halves. The first half of the movie is literally just a play because it's all in Gondo's house. 
the second half, honestly, a lot of it is just in the police station, even though there, there's a lot of moving around, but it isn't like super hectic, crazy running ever. The movie has changed into one of the most engaging police procedurals that has ever been made. King Ogando, you see a scene where his creditors are like, you can't pay a ransom on a child if we have to foot the bill. That's what they say. Yeah, and it's like, but why do I have to foot the bill? He's not my child. Yeah. <laughs> Poor man. <laughs> One really cool character beat that I like is when they find Gondo uh, doing his lawn and he's really sweaty and everything. And it's like, yeah, he's not hiring a landscaper because he doesn't have the money anymore. And that isn't said, but you just can logically make that connection. Like, oh yeah, this guy's already starting to live different means of life before he's evicted from his home. Yeah, it's literally like the parasite parents having to cut their own lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is kind of like the parasite house. But yeah, we are now in police procedural. We're basically a totally different set of characters. Like some of them cross over, some of them don't. It is 30 minutes in this police meeting where we keep cutting to different things that the other is it really? pe people have done. Yeah, it's a 30 minute thing. It doesn't feel it at all because it's so engaging and there's so much happening. So I guess there's like three arcs, really. Two halves, but three arcs. Because like there's, you know, the whole crime, then there's that part. And then there's actual like getting the criminal at the end. It's like a half, a quarter, and a quarter, but the two quarters are very closely connected more than the other half is. We should call out, not only is Takashi Shimura have his cameo as one of the head police chiefs, but so does Susumu Fujita, Sanshiro Sugata. Sanshiro Sugata himself, our beautiful, smiling boy. Tim didn't notice him in the scene. I noticed him the second he shows up on screen, because I think he... I, know, I, I noticed him in the scene. I didn't notice him the first frame. Because most of this, like, is from behind his head. <laughs> I don't know. I, the second you see his face, I was like, there he is. There's our guy. I think he smiles or, like, giggles or whatever. He, like, makes a little bit of a smirk, and it's so identifiable. Susumu Fujita, he is given, like, the privilege of being the head of the police company, but he is not given the privilege of saying or doing anything important. I think he has one line. He has one line where there's, like, all right, let's, like, wrap up this meeting. <laughs> I think Takashi Shimura has, like, even less than that. <laughs> Still, they are the royalty of the Kurosawa acting company. They're there. They're important. They're, you know... Given a lot of, like, face on screen time, even though they don't do anything. And unfortunately, this is his last appearance in our Akira Kurosawa retrospective. Next week, we're going to have to say goodbye to Toshiro Mifune, but this might even hurt more for us saying goodbye to Susumu Fujita after a role where he does nothing. <laughs> he started out as the star. Straight out of the gate, he's amazing in Sinjiro Sagata. He is amazing in Sinjiro Sagata, too. And he is just as amazing in No Regrets for Our Youth. And then he basically isn't really the lead ever again. I will say that he's amazing in Yojimbo when he runs away and smiles and waves. God, I honestly like my favorite smile in cinematic history. <laughs> System of Fujita. I am right there with you. I hope the listener agrees. You gotta see it. It's amazing. But yeah, in this movie, he is just like one of the like big wigs at the police station who like is in charge of the meeting but doesn't do anything. Really, all the actual work is being done by the new Kurosawa star, Tatsuya Nakadai. I like that he's in charge and Boson isn't because he's like clearly twice his age. Well, Boson's like the head of the investigations unit. It's kind of like Stray Dog, where Takashi Shimura is more important, but Toshiro Mifune is the one actually doing everything. But it's weird because you don't actually know who Boson is, he's just the guy. There's a lot of so many different Kurosawa movies here, but Stray Dog is the big one. The most identifiable element from Stray Dog, beyond it being a police procedural, is the extreme heat that is seen, and there's a lot of that here, because they really play up... If this movie did keep its title Heaven and Hell, this is where we're really in the hell part. Everyone is always sweating, even in the police station. There's so much fan waving and blowing, and also when they go to Dope Alley, that scene in particular is a lot like that scene in Stray Dog, where they go to visit the one go-go dancer and they're all lying on the floor and hot and they don't want to move. 
I also noticed some stuff from Drunken Angel with the dance sequence in the club. It reminded me a lot of when they had those sequences with Mifune barely holding it together before he dies. Also kind of happens in Ikaru. One thing I do like is that the villain of the film, we're introduced to him privately about like halfway through the movie. We're not told that we're seeing him really ever, but it is made clear. There's that really gross canal that some of the cops walk past, and then we shift the camera over to seeing the reflection of the kidnapper walking across. Because of the way that it focuses on it, you just know, okay, this must be the guy. And that canal reminds me a lot of the sump in Drunken Angel. It's a very clever visual way to like transition, and then now we're following this guy. And he just like has newspapers and goes back to his shitty apartment. You see the newspapers he's reading are all the headlines about King Ogando. And the headlines are like, the whole city loves King Ogando, like he did such a good thing by saving this guy, and he like gets mad. Do you think what he wanted was for him not to give the money? To ruin his reputation? He wanted to ruin this guy's life because he was so angry and jealous of him. It's hard to judge the actual like lucid motives of anybody that would actually do this because it is so insane. Yeah, also, I mean, his character is kind of poorly motivated. He really is, like, basically suicidal. He, like, is a man that does not care about his life and just wants to exact revenge upon the world before he dies. He lives for nothing, so he just wants it to be over, but he wants others to suffer the way that he has his entire life. He's like, I've never known joy, ever. The audience gets clued into him because we see him, like, privately on our own before the police find him. It's a very interesting decision on Kurosawa's part because it removes the mystery. We now know who the kidnapper is. Yeah, it's uh, some young man who lives in a shitty apartment that can see the house from up on the hill. And that's all we know about him. Yeah, it's like, okay, we now know it wasn't any of the directors. We know it wasn't his assistant. We suppose it's possible that he could have been hired by the other guys. But you kind of get the sense that that's probably not the case because he seems to be obsessing over Gondo. The main thing in his life, besides like his abject poverty, is the fact that his house is perfectly set up so he can see Gondo's house in the hill. It's like the only thing he can see from his window really is the house in the hill. Yeah, it's his entire view. I like, the, again, like in Stray Dog, how we have a villain that has no connection to the protagonist of the movie. But I think it works a lot better here as a more understandable motivation rather than in Stray Dog, where it was entirely based on the hunch that this guy would never have ditched the gun or like never would have reloaded it. Yeah, wasn't the thing in Stray Dog mostly like it didn't mean that much to the villain, where in this one it means everything to the villain. He could very easily have wound up getting the gun back from someone totally different. It was a little bit beyond the realm of possibility that he would actually be able to hunt down this guy. But this one, I think, I think this whole movie is building on a lot of Stray Dog things, what makes it a lot better, in my opinion. In Stray Dog, the protagonist obsesses about the villain. In this movie, the villain obsesses about the protagonist. Yeah, 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 it is a reversal of that. Later on, there'll be a lot of stuff to kind of connect them further when they finally meet at the end. Man, this fucking villain, though, Takeuchi, we don't learn much about him at this point, but he's just fucking nuts. I love him. I think he's a great character. No offense to Tsutsumo Yamazaki, but he really does look crazy. Just like his face look, looks like a villain. And like exactly this kind of modern villain who's just like turned villainous by the malaise of society and poverty, I think is what Kurosawa was going for. Where he becomes Jokerfied. The villain in the movie is society, but more specifically, it's Takeuchi. <laughs> He looks especially villainous later on when he has those sunglasses on. The way that it's lit is like you do get like a starry pupil in each one of them from a reflection of a light. And it's like this man beaming into people and he has like the devilish smile on him as he knows he's going to go kill someone. <laughs> yeah, like anime villain. He really makes this not threatening guy look threatening. He's somehow just like a 20 year old dude, like a doctor, but also like a psychopath. 
and he portrays Bolt very well, even from the very beginning, when he's just reading newspapers, and then, you know, looking at his binoculars up at Gondo's house. We know that the cops don't have much to go on for who this guy actually is or what he looks like. They have the Super 8 footage and pictures, but they don't see his face. They just see, like, okay, he's got the frame of a young man. Other cops are, you know, putting together clues about there's, like, this stolen car at this time, so we were able to punt this down, and then we saw these other pieces, and listening to the tapes over and over, we can hear certain sounds, like a trolley moving, or they can hear the money being deposited in a payphone, so they know that this guy called from a payphone, so they distinguish which ones can see the house, because he says he can see the house, and he can look inside, and... So, like, now we gotta find all these, like, they have an elaborate map, like they do in The Hidden Fortress or in Seven Samurai, so that's, like, another Kurosawa touch there. Love when he uses maps. The whole police scene is, like, guy in charge says, so can we have a report from this department? And then two guys say, oh, we have a little bit, but not much. And, you know, then they will sometimes cut to them, like, getting that information or whatever. And it does that over and over and over again. Aoki is also very determined to get this man caught because he personally feels so guilty for indirectly having Gondo's life be ruined. So he is kind of playing detective with his son, trying to jog his memory. Shinichi's drawn a picture of the view from where he was being held hostage so they know he could see this one island, that it was on a coast. They actually wind up crossing paths with the bosun and another cop, and he's like, like, what are you doing, you idiot? This is so dangerous. This man kidnapped your son, and now you're gonna, like, lead him to him. That is a cool scene where both Basin and Aoki are driving around the coastline in cars. They're kind of in the same places, but kind of not, and they finally converge. And then right at the moment of converge, he yells at him, and then he's like, wait a minute, where's the boy? Yeah, I was like... <laughs> I, I was like, fuck, are you kidding me? I was like, so anxious when that happened. That would have been so funny if he was, was kidnapped again, and he calls Gondo again, and is like, I want another 30 million. Yeah, yeah. That's not what happens. Uh, the boy just walks up a hill, and he's like, wait a minute, this is the compound that I was held at. And then they go up, and they, you know, pull their guns out. <laughs> Aoki kind of runs in two, like he's a cop, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and then finally, the hot cop and Boston, the ugly cop, get to the window, and they realize, wait, uh, the people in here are dead. Yeah, there's two dead junkies in there who have died of a heroin overdose. They have beaten Takeuchi to this location. And they find some of the stolen money. They were paid by Takeuchi, so ostensibly the woman that was in there was the one that was holding Shinichi when the train went by. They also have a note in their handwriting. The other note says, please buy us more drugs. We'll spend the money. We can't take this anymore. It's very clever of Takeuchi to use drug addicts as a pawn in his crime game. These people were murdered by Takeuchi indirectly by him giving them too potent heroin that he knew would overdose them. Yeah, intentionally not cut, like, buying pure heroin that isn't cut with other things to dilute it. Please explain it. He's like, most street heroin is about 30% pure. This was 90%. So if they took a normal dose, it's triple the regular dose and it would absolutely kill them. And I really like the way that they say, like, this is how we can reasonably suspect that this is a murder because these people are clearly junkies. They do this all the time. So what are the odds that now all of a sudden they would have an overdose when they would do this all the time and they would know the exact amounts that they would take? Yeah, like regular heroin users wouldn't make this mistake. And they say all of this to the press, which I like that he's bringing that element in like he did in The Bad Sleep Well, where like the press were going to be a tool for exposing evil. So now Kurosawa finally gets to use the press as that tool to expose corruption. But the cops say, we want you to print a fake story to try and lure this guy out. But don't print that they're dead because that'll like ruin the investigation. What we want you to do is print a story that says that one of the identifiable bills from the crime has been used. So, like, give in to the fear that this guy had that led him to kill them. Putting stuff in there to bait him into making a return to the shack so that he can go and kill them again, essentially. And then they can just stake that place out and wait for him. 
Right when they start to learn this, they also have Shinichi draw out a really bad drawing of what this guy looked like from his memory. Shinichi just does it, and Aoki's like, hey, check it out. He was wearing, like, a sock over his face to obscure his look so that Shinichi couldn't identify him. But he was able to identify that he had a wrapping on his hand. They put out a story saying, uh, this is what the bag looks like that would hold the money. So he immediately, like, gets rid of the bag. He burns it. This is what leads to it being the only color film <laughs> thus far. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's And it's so great. And they have that, that great, like, little horn sting that they keep using in the movie. Then it plays super strong when the bag is finally burned and they can see the pink smoke from Gondo's house. You hear Shinichi say, hey, Dad, look, pink smoke. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> and they run over. And then we, the audience, see pink smoke coming out of this smokestack. On a black and white film. Does it look the best? No, but it is so wild. He's breaking the rules. You can't do that. It's a black and white movie. <laughs> Color film has existed for decades, and he's just so far has chosen not to use it. He's shooting the most gorgeous footage that he could possibly shoot with super wide lenses. And he always uses really long lenses and really overlights all of his movies because they need all of the light to come in for it to work at that length. That's why all his movies always look so sharp. He's never chosen to apply that with color. He's always kept it black and white. But now he's finally like having a little fun with the formula. That happened because they ran a story about it. The guy like is clearly getting nervous. They go to the guy who burned the bags, who is like a really grimy dude, just extremely mad, throwing tin cans into the fire and just getting pissed. The one thing he does tell him is, oh yeah, the guy seemed like he was probably a medical student. I think he was going to internal medicine. So then they go undercover. It always looks extremely conspicuous to the audience when they go undercover because we're supposed to know who they are. They finally see a doctor, yeah, with a cut on his hand that matches what Shinichi drew. Extremely deep gash. That's like another clue leading to this might be our man. So then they take the junkie note and they have an expert forgery done to make it seem like they didn't die of an overdose and they have someone deliver the note to him so that he thinks that they're still alive. His reaction right away proves to them, okay, this man is definitely guilty, but we can't arrest him yet because we can't prove that he killed two people because we're going off of no evidence. We highly suspect, and based on that reaction, it basically confirms, yes, he did do this, but that evidence won't hold up in court, and he's only going to get a couple years in prison for kidnapping. Yeah, that's the part where they're like, man, we can only get this guy for 15 years. We want him to have the death sentence. <laughs> Which is, like, fair, he's an awful, horrible man, but, like, it's a little gross, like, we want revenge, we want him to, like, fucking die. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like, uh, hey, whoa, wait, hang on a minute. Up till now, I've, I've supported a lot of what you guys are doing. I might agree with it, and it's like, yeah, he did this crime, and they need to actually get him, but it is also, there's a, a fine line between doing that and actually, like, having a vendetta against this guy because he wronged someone that you guys like. It's state overreach. I think every character in this movie is morally complicated. They really want to get him, so they're trying to essentially frame him to recommit the crime he already committed to prove that he did it the first time. Early in the film, they're like, what he did is already a capital punishment, but then I guess it wasn't. Originally, it was extortion, but then it actually wasn't extortion because it wasn't actually his kid. But then later, Boston says this is kidnapping for extortionate purposes, so it should count. Yeah, it's just like, that's something that's going to have to be up to a judge, probably, to decide. Whereas like, oh, this guy also commits like triple homicide. That on top of kidnapping a child and threatening to murder him for the highest ransom in Japan's history is like probably the right concoction to get this guy into the chair. This initiates the final act, which is the actual like following stakeout whatever sequence to nab this guy. A little long, 
this is like one of the more linear parts of the movie. We're staying in this one moment for a prolonged period of time. There's a lot of time dedicated to him doing this very elaborate meeting with a drug dealer to buy dope. The club scene is definitely too long. <laughs> the club scene's insane. It's really cool, and I, it was really fun. I get, like, the movie's been very tight and controlled. He kind of wants to let loose and go completely nuts, and he does. It's still too long. It's too long, but I'm still engaged with it, and I'm having fun with the cops cycling in and out for, like, who is following him. They're all just dressed in, like, suit pants and a white button-down, and that's how every man looks. Three of them are dressed as Navy guys. The other two are dressed as gay. It starts with the guy. He's just, like, smoking a cigarette, and then he goes into the city, and he's not really doing what they expect. He's just kind of hanging out, he's smoking cigarettes, he's walking downtown, he buys a carnation, which is weird. Yeah, that's the first signal. He also puts on the sunglasses that give him the evil glare. And the entire time, we're like following a series of undercover cops, who once again are conspicuous to us, because they all do little things that like, they nod to the other cop, or they're wearing something weird, or they're in the shot. They're like following him very closely, like on top of him. And then he goes to the club. It starts with a shot that is nearly identical to one from Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, <laughs> where he looks at a mirror looking down at a party scene, and then eventually pans down to the party. I was thinking of Akiru, but Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 works also. No, no, that exact way that shot happens <laughs> is exactly the way it happens in Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. I was like, oh, this rules. And it's really, it's cool in both movies. Behind the scenes, this co-host has seen the movie Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 150 times <laughs> over the course of three years. He's not exaggerating. I've seen it with you at least twice. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, probably more. Anyway, I love the club scene. Woman puts on a crazy dance song. It's obvious that she's the one who's going to give him the drugs. They start dancing on the dance floor. The cops are, like, right next to them. I think the cops somehow miss the handoff. No, they see it. They definitely see it. They say he's got it. Yeah, they say he's got it, but they don't say that we saw him do it. They're like, the guy's like, you're sure he has it? They're like, yeah, we're sure he has it. It must have happened. Even though the cops are directly next to him dancing. But yeah, they do, like, a dance, and they, like, touch hands in the middle of the dance, and that's when the money is handed off, and that's when the drugs are handed off a second later. Then we really go to a very scary scene. Another heaven and hell contrast of heaven, like all these people having such a great time dancing together and drinking. And then we go right next door, essentially, to Dope Alley, where everyone is strung out and very scary, zombie-like. Yeah, we hear over the headset, they're like, it's, he's not going to the hideout, he's going to Dope Alley. Why? And then we cut to Dope Alley, and it is insane, the way this scene is shot. I wouldn't necessarily call it a sensitive portrayal of the way her addiction looks like or whatever, but... It is proof that if Kurosawa ever made a zombie movie, it would have been one of the greatest movies of all times. It really does feel like we walked into a zombie movie, the way that they block off, like, you're probably cops, get out of here. The light is always hitting people's faces at an extreme angle, and their faces are mostly in shadows. There's a long focus on one woman who's just throwing herself at different walls and clawing, and it's like nails on metal, kind of, for like two straight minutes, essentially. My dad was like, does this guy have a vendetta against Gondo because she had one of his shoes and then it broke and she like fell and died. <laughs> and then we got to this woman and he was like, this must be his mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't think so. That's a more reasonable interpretation than I think. <laughs> and then he off screen gives this woman this pure heroin. There's no reason that he wouldn't go straight to this most important thing in his life, but he has to make sure that this will kill whoever he gives it to. And it does. And the cops are there. The cops are right nearby. And because they let this guy run loose, this other woman is dead. And they don't really ever care about it. It is weird they don't care about it. In defense, in the moment, the three cops who are there don't realize what's going on until it's too late. It's the one on the phone, like the main guy who's like, oh shit, he's going to go kill her. At that point, I think it's already too late. Yeah, but it is the fact that they gave him the impetus to start this series of events that eventually caused this woman's death. That the cops are indirectly responsible for this woman dying. That's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It isn't addressed very much, but it is another lingering question that Kurosawa leaves you with, where you're like, 
These guys are good guys, but they do bad thing. There's no one in this movie that's totally clean. And then after that, that is when he is officially going to the hideout to kill his two accomplices. The vibe becomes extremely wild when it starts in this like nice shot of flowers and the ocean. And then we hear jazz or whatever. We hear like a pleasant, fun little song. And it's like really, <laughs> it's a wild tonal shift. And you're like, what's going on? And his head pops up. And this is a really cool shot. I don't think either of us picked this for our shot, but it's very obviously like one of the iconic shots of the film. Takayuchi comes up, his head's in the flowers, and then his sunglasses are reflecting like the ocean in front of him. It looks awesome, and it lingers on it for like a, a minute. It's just really nice. The cops reveal themselves, and he immediately tries to kill himself by just ingesting pure heroin, and they grab his hand. And for some reason, there's a weird cut where all of a sudden they are trying to handcuff him, and then it, there's like a quick cut, and then they've handcuffed him. And it's like the same shot, and it's like, why'd that happen? They didn't do a very good job pulling his hand away. And that concludes that whole arc, and we have the epilogue. There's a brief little scene where they're like, oh, we got $27 million, will that be enough? And then as they say that, like someone slaps a for sale sign on the couch they're sitting on. Yeah, they were like, please don't sit on the couch because you don't own that anymore. Yeah, well, no, the auction's like, no, you can have it. It'll just be sold tomorrow. <laughs> so the answer is the 30 million will not be enough. We don't really know what his situation is. It's clearly not good because all this stuff is being auctioned off. He got a lot of his money back and that's a lot of money for someone to have, but he's certainly not going to be living the high life. Yeah, he's no longer Parasite House Rich. He is just a guy now. And then we are at the prison scene. We get told, oh, Takeuchi didn't want to see a chaplain. He just wanted to see you. So thank you for coming. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, I'll meet with this guy. I don't know who he is, but I do want to talk to him for like, why did you want to ruin my life? And the audience, me, also wants to know why he ruined his life. And do we get an answer? Kind of. In the philosophical realm, yes, we do. The victim could have been anybody, and it wound up being Gondo. If another couple lived in that house, he would have targeted that couple instead. This scene is amazing almost entirely due to Sutomo Yamazaki, who is just doing an acting masterclass in this scene, playing this young, normal guy who just has had a tough life. The malaise of poverty kind of drove him insane. He keeps saying, they're going to kill me. I don't care. I hate living. His words say one thing, but the way that Yamazaki is acting, the emotion gets out of him and then he quickly bottles it up again. But like he might have a sniffle or he'll kind of twitch. He's like grimacing the entire time, painfully. He's like, I wanted you to see how like proud I would be in death. I'm not crying. I don't give a shit. I'm fine. But then at the same time, he's having a breakdown. And he's like, oh, it's it's because they just let me out of solitary. That's why. But I don't think that's why. Yeah, it's like this hasn't been that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been like like a week. You know, like the whole time he's like, so how are you, Gondo? And Gondo's like, uh, I'm fine. I work at a smaller shoe company now, but they let me do what I want. I'm going to build them up and hopefully we can rival national shoes one day. He's obviously mad that Gondo became a public figure that was admired when he wanted to totally ruin him. The only motivation he had was that this guy had this awful life and he could see Gondo up on a hill living in comfort. Like I said earlier, the villain was society. It was the shitty society that could lead this guy to have such an awful poverty-stricken life and want revenge. When he finally just totally snaps and grabs the fence and shakes it, the guards come in and grab him and then this shutter comes down and it just leaves Mifune looking at his own reflection just sitting there. There's also really great shots of the people's reflections from each side to have them kind of converge or be more opposite of one another depending on what the context of the line is. Really, really great stuff with a very minimal set. It really is like a reflective moment to end the movie on. The screen shuts down, you see him sitting, and the end. It's cut to black, and then you're staring at your screen, <laughs> feeling probably the same way. It's an incredibly strong ending for an incredibly strong movie. Yeah. I was thinking, like, how are they going to wrap this up? What was the motivation? 
I was really looking for an answer that he didn't give us, but I, you know, obviously he's the master. This is better. I like it more like that. I think it's the right mix of having a personal connection between the victim and the oppressor, but also at the same time having it be abstract. So many crimes are personal, one-on-one, people that know each other, and then there's so many crimes that aren't. This is really like fate intervening into Gondo's life, where it's like, I don't know this guy, why did he suddenly ruin my life? There's no good answer, like sometimes people's lives just get ruined for no good reason. The suspense that he's able to ratchet up in this movie is unparalleled, I think, in his filmography. It is literally an edge-of-your-seat movie for so much of it, because it's so engaging, so intriguing, and especially because of how well it's shot. I think the cinematography in this movie is really, really good, and I feel like I'm just saying saying that every week. He's always been a strong filmmaker, but now he's really, really flexing. My favorite shot was what we talked about with the pink smoke. He really has taken every convention, and I think what Kurosawa was able to do so well so many times is to give you an expectation of something and then to take it away, or to prove you wrong. And the thing is, every single shot you expect to be in black and white. He subverts that most basic expectation of watching a black and white movie by giving you color, and that's freaking crazy. The principal actors in the shot, and they're all looking down onto the city, which there's a lot of in this whole movie, looking down. The opening credits are looking down on the city from the Gondo residence, which, yeah, sets up the entire real theme of the movie. You capture that here in an incredibly unique way. I do agree that the cinematography is wonderful. There was a little bit in the beginning where it's all in the house. I'm like, all right, this is getting a little, like, tired. It's just there's only so much you can do in one room for, like, 40 minutes. But my shot actually has nothing to do with cinematography. My shot is of Kurosawa royalty. There's one scene in the police procedural, essentially, part where they're all doing the meeting, where it just cuts to, from left to right, Tatsuya Nakadai, Takashi Shimura, and Susumu Fujita. And they're all just sitting there, they're all laughing, and I was like, look at that, that's three hugely important actors in Kurosawa's filmography, and they're all just sitting there, like, at the head of this table, given the importance that they deserve for what they've done for his filmmaking. So I just really like to see it, just made me really happy. I was like, look at that, three kings. We have the new, and he's kind of taking over, and the two who are, like, clearly important, but they're in the backseat now, as they are in the movie, as they are in his filmography been there since day one literally i just love to see him it is such a shame that susumu fujita won't be in any more of them but i'm glad we got to see him last time in my frame he's smiling not his full toothy smile but yeah he's still smiling takashi shimura looks great he looks you know like a cool old guy like he has his entire life but now he's actually starting to <laughs> be the part and it just made me really happy i just like that shot feel so much connection to these actors now after all these movies that they've been in with kurosawa he like clearly has a respect for that too even when he puts in his company of actors and they don't have a big part they're still important I agree, and that's something that you can really only get from watching a filmmaker's entire oeuvre, where they do reuse people, and you start to gain this connection. And now can come in with an understanding of a character before they even actually do anything, which is really good. Or sometimes he can use that to subvert it, and then you get to see a whole new side of it, a character, which I also really like. Not in this one, but yeah. If you hadn't seen his first, like, four films, you just wouldn't know who Susumu Fujita is, and, like, you wouldn't understand, like, it wouldn't mean anything to you that he's just some guy at the head of the table. Let's go to the Toshiro Mufune hotness, hotness scale. scale. Ten. S- ten. <laughs> I'm giving him a ten. Fuck you. I thought he looked amazing in this movie. <laughs> you can give him whatever you want. I now regret giving him a ten in Sanjuro, because I think he looks better in this movie. He's looking thick and run down in this one. Yeah, okay. He starts strong. He kind of looks run down towards the end, because he is, but he's still a king. He's very handsome, but he's not quite in his uh, peak physical shape that we saw, like, every other week. He does hit a lot of your sweet spots in particular. I will give you that. I understand. He's a shoemaker. That's hot. He's a mustache in this movie. Looks awesome. 
he's kind of dressed the same way that he was dressed in The Bad Sleep Well, but I think he looked better in The Bad Sleep Well. I'll throw it in the uh, 9.3, 9.4 range. Just because, like, he spends the whole movie being upset and sad, wiping his curtains over around. But now, the big number... I used to always have this movie at a 9 because I had issues with the structure and some of the conveniences. The fact that it is, like, a little bit too long, like, some parts of it drag and Gondo kind of drops out. Watching it this time, I was like, you know what? It really doesn't matter. This movie doesn't really work following, like, one person all the way through for, like, a big character arc. Even though there are big character arcs in this, it isn't structured in the same way that a normal movie is. And you would think, oh, revealing the kidnapper's identity right in the middle of the movie, what a weird thing to do that ruins the suspense. It really doesn't. Everything that he does here really works, and he's created an incredibly engaging police procedural that incorporates so many strong techniques, so much great editing, cinematography. I really like the musical theme of this movie. I don't think that it's Kurosawa's very best, but I think it is definitely one of them. It is a 10 out of 10 for me again. I kind of feel about it the same way that you did with Yojimbo. Overall, there's a few things to take it down just a little bit, but not enough to actually bring it to a 9. This movie deserves a 10. I'm with you 100%. I thought it was a 10. Like, I have a pretty bad attention span, and for two hours and 23 minutes, I was completely engaged. I really want to know what happened. The questions that it raises and the way it tackles them are all fantastic. It looks amazing. 10. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's an amazing movie. We're going to test your attention span and your heartstrings next week when we have our last Toshiro Mifune movie, The End of an Era, Redbeard, a movie I know you've always wanted to see movie that in seventh grade i looked up good movies from around the world and redbeard and tokyo story came up as the two best ones ever and i didn't watch either but now i've seen tokyo story and i'm excited to see redbeard it's a movie that on a hold i was in seventh grade but i'm assuming this is like 14 years in the making of me wanting to see i'm sure that you will like this movie a whole lot more now than you would have if you saw it in seventh grade <laughs> i was a surprisingly precocious little kid but i'm so excited to see it I think it'll be a really great way to have Toshiro Mifune end his long career with Kurosawa. I think we're going to have a really fun conversation next week with Redbeard. Please tune in then. Mm -hmm.